Good evening. Great to be here with you guys exploring this theme of identification and non-identification. So in Buddhist teachings, we sometimes talk about identification and non-identification with experience. And I want us to explore more deeply what this means um, and how does non-identification relate to the freedom teachings, especially the teachings of anatta or not-self. Many of you have heard the acronym RAIN, R-A-I-N. It's um, in pretty common usage as a way to um, develop mindfulness. It was actually coined by my teacher, Michelle McDonald. Not everybody knows that, but that's where it started. And um, the RAIN stands for recognition, acceptance or allowing, investigation, and non-identification. Some of you may have heard a version where the last word is nurture. That's been used, and some people find that very helpful. In the original formulation, that last word N is non-identification. And um, you could say it's the hardest to understand of the four. And so that's why I'm really interested in exploring it more deeply with you all. And also the non-identification part is the most Buddhist part of, of the four. And let's see, I want to keep the Buddhism in there and um, explain to you why that acronym is a Buddhist acronym. Um, so, so we did review them just to make sure everybody's on the same page, recognize, you know, know what's happening, allow, make space for what's happening, investigate. It's moving closer to what's happening to see, well, ultimately to see its nature, its nature as impermanent, uh, dukkha, and um, not self. Um, we have a new cat, a new kitten in our house. We got a kitten a couple of days ago, and uh, she's about eight weeks old, nine weeks old. I was watching her this afternoon and thinking, She's an example of investigation because everything is interesting to her. She's like, you know, everything's like, what this? What's this? How does this function? You know, what does this mean to, to me? And uh, whether it's my big toe or my sweatshirt or the blanket on the floor, she's so curious and alive about everything. So we could think of investigation in that way, curiosity. And those three, um, they move us closer to experience to really connecting and, and being with experience. And then this fourth one of non-identification, I, it's almost like a kind of um, corrective if we um, move close to experience in a way that we start to identify with it. It, it, it brings in some um, space. It's, so the first three, if we start closing in around an experience, it brings in that mind and heart that's spacious around experience. So to talk about um, non-identification, we have to talk about identification because non-identification is not identifying. So what's identified? We want to explore that. So what happens, right, is experiences arise in this mind, heart, body. And the Buddha divided them up in different ways, but one way would be the six senses. Um, 
So hearing, smelling, tasting, feeling the body, cognizing, and um, seeing <laughs> um, arise in this body. And um, what the truth of the matter is that they rise because causes and conditions come together in a certain way, and then they end when causes and conditions change. So on um, one level, it's, it's, it's quite impersonal. <laughs> It's just life manifesting, or sometimes to me, it feels like life kind of bubbling up and then <laughs> bubbling up, and it might bubble up as anger, it might bubble up as a so hearing a sound, it might bubble up as seeing a sight. And so um, this is not to wipe out, however, that on one level, they are personal. These experiences that arise are personal. It's kind of paradoxical, you could say. Um, if my knee is in pain, that's my knee. <laughs> and I have to figure out what I'm going to do about it. Like, for example, I can't sit cross-legged anymore because my knee <laughs> uh, gets inflamed, right? So on that level, it's kind of personal. <laughs> if we feel angry, Han describes it like this. He says, there's a screaming baby in the room. It's your baby and you have to take care of it. So yeah, if we're angry, we have to, you know, own it enough that we um, take care of that experience, recognize that it's, that it's happening for us. So all of that is true. However, there's also the level that it's um, not so personal that it's, as I said, life bubbling up. It's impermanent. The three characteristics of impermanence, unreliability, and uncontrollability, another way of saying not self. As Ruth King says, nothing is permanent, perfect, or personal. I love the way she puts that. It's so easy to remember. <laughs> Nothing in life is permanent, perfect, or personal. But when we identify with things, we attempt to make them permanent. We attempt to make things perfect because we identify in order to manage things and try to get them to be the way we want them to be. That's why we identify. So we make them permanent perfect and are perfectible and um, personal. Basically, with identification, we're trying to make experience solid enough, permanent enough, you could say, solid enough, permanent enough, that we can manage it. It's the very beginning of the whole cascade of reactivity and of creation of self. It's separate, identifying, we tend to separate ourselves out of the flow and the impermanence and this bubbling up of life. We attempt to separate out. You see what I'm doing with my hands, right? We're like identifying, separating out so that we can manage things. Or when things get a little tighter so we can control them. 
it's it's all about um, control, actually, and control is all about self. We this doing that. So we feel identification as contraction, a kind of contraction, attention, a limiting of the space in the heart and the mind. It's all so personal. And it starts, as Nick pointed out, it starts the, the drama, the cascade of, um, of papancha and of reactivity and of self. It's, it's, it's uh, the prerequisite. <laughs> for all of all that following. So we try with um, identification to make experience permanent enough that we know what to do with it and that we can manage it. And obviously, if it's pleasant, we try to keep it. If it's unpleasant, we try to get rid of it. So we glom down to experience so that we can manage it. That's identification. So non-identification is not doing that. It's allowing um, experience to arise and pass away with some sense of spaciousness in the heart and the mind. So the experience is there. It's real. We have those first three, recognize, allow, investigate, but we don't make it more real. We don't make it more solid. We don't solidify experience. So we allow experience to be fluid. As Laurel said, with non-identification, it was less permanent. Less permanent means more fluid. That's the same thing. So we allow life to be more fluid and not um, so... Divided up into chunks <laughs> that um, that are that are built out of out of contraction, built out of identifying. And so we notice how we identify. It's not like you can say to yourself, "Don't identify." Um, we notice when identification is present. And we consider what um, what helps us to put space around it. So, for example, let's say we have pain in our shoulders, and we identify it with it. So we glom onto it. We we want to fix it. It's ours. We start thinking about how we're going to be a hunchback the rest of our lives, and um, imagine a future where that pain's always going to exist. That's all identification. In truth, what's happening is sensations are arising and passing away moment by moment. It's not who we are. It's not our fault. And again, like we kind of hold both, right? Like if we have persistent pain in our shoulders, yeah, we should figure out what we're going to do about that. But in the moment that that pain is present, there's also the possibility of a spaciousness that sees it as arising and passing away sensations in, in nature, part of life. This is nature of life. It's arising and bubbling up. And so we can see that um, 
understanding and permanence is at the core of non-identification. If it's always changing, how can we hold on to it? One of my favorite non-identification or identification and non-identification stories is from Ajahn Chah. This is from Ajahn Amaro's book, Small Boat, Great Mountain. So Ajahn Chah is the famous um, Thai forest master, a quite amazing um, meditation master, no longer alive. And he tells a story of one of the times when he was younger and he was um, in just learning to meditate. And um, he was uh, off in the woods. And the, well, it wasn't woods. It was jungle there, I guess, in, in um, Thailand. So he was off in the jungle and he was a wandering monk. So he was uh, living in a jungle near a village, going down for um, alms round. Um, and one night he writes, in Thailand, this is what Ajahn Amro writes. In Thailand, they love outdoor night-long film shows because the nights are cool compared to the very hot days. Whenever there was a party, it tended to go on all night. About 50 years ago, public address systems were just starting to be used in Thailand and every decent event had to have a PA going. I know about this from my time in Burma. It is true. <laughs> all night long. <laughs> So it blasted as loudly as possible through all the night so everybody could enjoy the party. One time Ajahn Chah was quietly meditating up on the mountain while there was a festival going on down in the village. All the local folk songs and pop music were amplified throughout the area. Ajahn Chah was sitting there seething and thinking, don't they realize all the bad karma involved in disturbing my meditation? They know I'm up here. After all, I'm their teacher. Haven't they learned anything? And what about the five precepts? I bet they're boozing and out of control and so on and so forth. He was identifying with the sound. <laughs> Have you ever noticed like when you identify with a sound, like somebody can be making a sound, it has absolutely nothing to do with you or a sound can be happening and yet you're sure that it's happening just to bother you. It's, it's so incredibly diluted, but it's easy to do. That's identifying with the sound. But Ajahn Chah was a pretty smart fellow. As he listened to himself complaining, so drama, right? Identification drama. He quickly realized, well, they're just having a good time down there. I'm making myself miserable up here. No matter how upset I get, my anger is just making more noise internally. And then he had this insight. Oh, the sound is just the sound. It's me who is going out to annoy it. If I leave the sound alone, it won't annoy me. It's just doing what it has to do. That's what sound does. It makes sound. This is its job. So if I don't go out and bother the sound, it's not going to bother me. Aha. And he considered this insight one of the most important insights of all of his meditation practice. So that second example is non-identification. It's just nature. It's just the way nature is. It's conditions coming uh, together in a certain way that sound is a, the product. It's not personal. 
It's not permanent, right? As it turned out, this insight had such a profound effect that it became a principle that he espoused from that time on. If any of the monks displayed an urge to try and get away from people, stimulation, the world of things and responsibilities, he would tend to shove them straight into it. So he wanted them to learn non-identification. He didn't want them to try to avoid problems, but to actually learn. Another example, so we can talk about the six senses in different ways that was sound. How about identification with thoughts? So one time I was on a meditation retreat, many years ago, I'll say in my defense, um, and I was judging all of the meditators. Like when I wasn't in the hall, I was just judging, 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 judging. Some of you will relate to this. So it was like, look at, you know, what she's wearing. She thinks she's so pretty or look at how much food they're taking. Don't they know that you're supposed to eat less on a long retreat and look at how they're walking. They should walk more quietly so they don't disturb people. It just went on and on. And I I started to feel pretty bad about myself. (laughs) I thought, oh my God, I'm such a horrible person. So I went into my teacher and, um, spent some time talking about my experience and what a bad person I was (laughs) because I couldn't stop this, you know, went on and on. And he listened quietly. And then he said, it's just a thought. And that happened like 30 years ago. And it had such a profound effect on me. I was like, Oh, (laughs) I'd been totally identified with those thoughts. I was believing them, which is one of the hallmarks of identification with thought. We believe it. And I was making it who I was and what I was. And it was was saying something about my who I was and what I was. And after he said that, you know, it was just like, oh, the, the judging thought would come up and be, oh, it's just a thought. It wasn't a problem. It was just a bubbling of the manifest, bubbling up of life, a manifestation of life. So there was space around it. When we identify with a thought, there's no space. It's like we're stuck in there, right? We're believing it. We're, it's like this, right? And this, oh, it's just a thought. And the fact that I can tell you about it shows some of the non-identification because if I was identified with it, I wouldn't tell you about that because I would think it makes me a bad person, but I don't think that. I still am judging thoughts and I identify with them so much less. That's progress in my practice. Oh, another way we can see this is when we have a health problem, right? So we start thinking about our health problem and we, and we usually wind up catastrophizing, right? Like these horrible things are going to happen. It's going to get worse. Um, all that's identification. Really what's happening right now is sensations in the body. Maybe thoughts are rising about that, but it's sensations coming and going. It doesn't mean that we don't take care of ourselves when we have a health problem and do something about it. But if we're identified with it, 
we suffer so much more, right? There's that collapse into this universe of me and drama about what's going to happen. We can spare ourselves that part. We still are human. We're still going to get old, die. All that's going to happen. But we don't have to um, fall into that rabbit hole of the, especially the catastrophizing. That's a hard part. So one last um, example of identifying with thoughts. Uh, a number of weeks ago, I, I came home. I was at the bottom of the driveway. I looked up the driveway and I didn't see my partner's car. I thought, oh, he must have gone somewhere. His car's not there. So I pull up the driveway, pull in, and I walk in the house and he's there. I'm surprised. I'm like, um, oh, oh, I didn't think you were here. Where's your car? He said, my car's in the driveway. <laughs> I had pulled up the driveway and parked my car next to his car and I hadn't seen it because I had decided that it wasn't there. It was fascinating, right? That I could do that. It's like the gorilla and the, you know, those, that, um, that movie where you, they, that thing they do where you, a basketball game and you're supposed to count how many team members or something. And meanwhile, this guy goes by in a gorilla suit that you don't see because you're not, you're, you're doing something else. How about emotions? It's a very easy place to identify, right? One time I was meditating at IMS, a, a longer retreat, and I was in the meditation hall and I was feeling lonely and I was kind of pitying myself for feeling lonely, you know, story, poor me, I'm lonely. What a horrible thing it was to be lonely and uh, nobody else was lonely, just me. And um, So I was identifying with loneliness, right? And then I had this thought, I was like, oh, all around the world right now, there are lonely people. Nobody gets through, no human gets through a life without feeling lonely. So those thoughts kind of burst the bubble of identification and loneliness was fine. It was just nature. It was just life manifesting right now in that way. So understanding the universality of it, the impersonality of it helped release the identification. One time I was um, reading a book called My Age of Anxiety, and it was some journalist, and the whole story was about um, his journey with anxiety. But he kept repeating the phrase, my anxiety, my anxiety, literally, I think it was hundreds of times in the book. And I, I felt like I just wanted to say to him, don't say my anxiety, because it encourages identification, right? Uh, say the anxiety or the anxiety I was experiencing or the anxiety arising or my anxiety. It encourages identification.
one time I was um, teaching and a student asked about anger. He said, I've been experiencing, um, I'm experiencing lots of anger and I've tried this and that and it doesn't, you know, seem to shift. And what can I do? I said, maybe it just wants space to exist. Can you allow it to have the space to be there? And afterwards, he said, wow, that was exactly what was needed. So when he was trying to manage the anger, get rid of it, there was identification. And what I was suggesting with the space, just giving it space, it's that space that allows the impermanence. It allows things to uh, move and shift and evolve. It's not permanent. It's not ours. It's not um, perfectible. <laughs> I was thinking a little bit about um, back to thoughts. I had a little marker, but I didn't see it. Um, back to thoughts, identification with political beliefs. Now we can see how how identification um, is increasing in our country, identification with political beliefs. And we see how this identification narrows the mind. When we identify with our opinions, beliefs, it narrows the mind. And it actually makes us only take in information that agrees with this narrow mind and to ignore information that doesn't agree. So that's another thing identification does is it, it, it looks for agreement, you could say. It, it, um, it colludes with our biases and our, um, our opinions to uh, influence perception. And then we see here the rigidity that happens, right, when we identify. I'm not talking about any, I'm talking about all of us, you know, not a specific political group, but when we, when we um, have that kind of identification with our beliefs, we become inflexible and unable to see reality in its vast kind of shifting nature. So non-identification, it doesn't mean that we don't believe anything. It doesn't mean that we don't have opinions. It means that we hold those with lightness. We hold those with space to see if we can get, you know, if new information might come in or adjustments might come in. So it's all, again, our relationship to the experience is one of more space. Still have the opinions, still have the we need opinions in this world. It's, you know, it's one of the things that guide us in our behavior. Um, I often uh, purposely listen to news that has biases not consistent with mine. And I do it to kind of keep my mind open and to ask myself what truth might be here that I'm missing 
because of my own biases and my own um, attachment and identification with my views. And the same thing with um, emotions, there's this narrowing. When emotion's present, there's a narrowing of possibility. Emotions, we all know this, they again filter, um, when we identify with them, they filter the information that comes in. When you're angry at your partner, your partner is suddenly a jerk. And like everything they do, they're a jerk. Everything they do is, is, is a problem. <laughs> Because anger is looking for that, right? And then um, when we hold our emotions with more lightness, less identification, the story is more fluid. Yeah, maybe they did something we feel disrespected, but that's not the entirety of who they are. We can respond generally with more compassion. So I hope you're getting the flavor of what I'm pointing towards. I'm trying to transmit a flavor. <laughs> and the flavor of non-identification is um, space and freedom and flexibility in the heart and the mind for experience to arise, exist, and pass away. It's very um, releasing identification is very related to the unbinding of the heart and mind. Because like I said, it's the beginning. It's a, it's a binding. It's the beginning of all the binding of heart and mind. So in a meditation, as I, I said during the meditation, this understanding develops from seeing how we're relating to experience. So are we closing down on it? Are we owning it, over-owning it. Sometimes how I put it, over-owning it, because yeah, it is true, it's happening right here. But are we over-owning it? Are we um, then getting all involved in, in papancha and reactivity and drama? Or we might notice we just take things so seriously. How do we experience this seriousness and how do we um, experience the spaciousness of letting go? So we get simpler. I mean, that's another sign of non-identification is that we get simpler, less drama. Some people even wonder where the juice is. For some people, it's even an acquired taste. <laughs> like we're so used to identification and drama and oh, so much story about me. And there's a way that we like that. We like it because it reaffirms that we exist in the way we think we exist. It reaffirms our importance. It, um, but it's a burden. And so when we learn this um, lightness of being, we start, we, we start to acquire a taste for the simplicity. So I wanna talk a little bit about what non-identification is not. So non-identification is not dissociation. 
with dissociation, in a subtle way, we're trying to push away experience. We're trying to get rid of it or get away with, from it. We're trying to protect ourselves from discomfort by distancing. So that's not non-identification. That's dissociation. <laughs> with non-identification, we're still fully with experience. You could say we still have recognize, allow, and investigate. So we're still fully with experience, but there's presence and um, relaxation. And I would say when there's non-identification, there's more presence and there's more um, experiencing of the experience because we haven't um, confined it. We haven't... um, Hmm, limited it. So if we're worried that we're dissociating, just check out, are the other three parts of RAIN there? Are we recognizing what's happening? Are we allowing it? Are we investigating it, moving closer to it? Our intimacy, you could call that I intimacy. Are we developing intimacy with the experience? The other thing that non-identification is not, is it's not not caring. It doesn't mean that we don't, that we don't care. So it isn't that kind of emotional detachment. That's not, that's not non-identification. Actually, when we don't glom onto experience, we're open. Our hearts are open. Our minds are open. We actually care more easily because connection, that openness engenders connection, connection engenders compassion and caring. So this kind of spaciousness or openness of non-identification allows us to be in deeper contact with experience and in more intimate contact with the world around us. Identification narrows our world, non-identification widens our world. So we're very active, present um, beings in our world. So the wise beings that I've known are the more realized beings, people I've known are all very light in nature. You can feel this... um, quality that I'm talking about, this lightness, spaciousness, even a playfulness. There's a there's a sense of playing with reality rather than taking it so seriously. Identification is serious. Non-identification can be playful. There's a story that I love from Sharon Salzberg's book, A Heart as Wide as the World about the Dalai Lama, and you can feel this playfulness and lightness in the story. At a Buddhist Christian conference I attended at Gethsemane Monastery in Kentucky, His Holiness the Dalai Lama was speaking about the tour of the monastery he had been given earlier that day. 
He began by saying that he's quite impressed that the monastery was able to support itself through the manufacture of cheeses and fruitcakes. Then, in the midst of this formal presentation with television cameras rolling, the Dalai Lama said, I was presented with a piece of the homemade cheese, which was very good, but really I wanted some cake. He laughed uproariously and repeated, it was so unfortunate. I really was hoping someone would offer me some cake, but no one did. His childlike candor was wonderful with nothing manipulative about it. Clearly, he could be quite happy without a piece of fruitcake. And part of the state of his state of happiness was the very ability to laugh at his desire for cake, as well as being able to speak about it unabashedly before dignitaries of two religions and a television audience. So he wasn't identified with his wanting a piece of cake, with desire, you could say. He wasn't identified with desire. He saw it arising, he even thought it was pretty funny <laughs> that it was there. And he was so um, unidentified with it that he was willing to talk about it in front of millions of people um, on, on TV. So a kind of playfulness with whatever arises, even if it's desire. So we come down a little bit to these paradoxes common in Buddhism that, yes, there is a way that we own experience, that it's personal, that it's happening in this heart and body and mind. We take care of this heart, body, mind. We respond appropriately. And uh, there's a way it's, it's not ours. It's not personal. It's life arising. It's conditions coming together. It's impermanent, imperfect impersonal. It's just like. The last thing I think I will say, I hope this doesn't, I hope this doesn't turn out to be a bummer for you all. <laughs> it doesn't feel like a bummer to me, but um, uh, a few weeks ago, three weeks ago, my young brother, my younger brother, um, one afternoon, he was fine. And then um, he wound up being taken to the emergency room. And in that evening, he was diagnosed with a, a, a massive glioblastoma, inoperable cancer. And one afternoon, he went from being a person who felt like he had control over his life and the constituents of heart, body, and mind to seeing that he didn't own any of it, right? So I've been through, obviously I'm okay right now. I wouldn't be talking about it, but obviously I went through the shock. What's so interesting is that death is so normal and yet we're so shocked by it, <laughs> right? It's, it's bizarre. Um, it's shocking how shocked we are by it. But it's the ultimate teacher in non-identification is what it feels like. 
because what we, for my brother, for example, he's going to be losing his and he's going to be losing capacities one by one. You know, what we think we own, what we think is, um, what we identify with and think that we can control. Death teaches us that that's not true, that all of it is impermanent, imperfect, and impersonal. So perhaps with non-identification, we can start. This is a line from a poem. I wanted to find the poem in the break, and I forgot I went and played with the cat. But um, <laughs> the, the line in the poem is learning our one death perfectly. So in, perhaps with non-identification, we're, we're learning our one death perfectly, learning how to hold it all lightly for that time, perhaps when we're shocked that it's our turn. I'll just end um, with a little poem by Robert Aiken. Everything just as it is, as it is, as is. Flowers in bloom, nothing to add. All right, thank you for your attention. And so perhaps you can just notice if anything from the talk resonated, something you want to kind of mark maybe as something that you want to explore in your own experience. Something that intrigued you perhaps. And then the rest of it, you can let it float away. You don't have to hold on to all of it. Holding it lightly. And uh, again, I just want to appreciate you all for, for being here and uh, such a lovely time to explore. I just like to sit together for a minute. That's, that's the closing. We've, we've had lots of words, but just sit and appreciate Sangha. Appreciate that we can gather. But we have the good fortune of the teachings. Very good fortune indeed. Wishing you all peace and depth in your practice.